Good morning, everyone. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. A couple weeks ago at one of the Bible studies, I can't remember exactly which one was, the story of a man named Steve Linscott was brought up. Uh, Who's heard of this guy before? Steve Linscott. Well, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, One author puts it this way. In the early morning hours of October 4th, 1980, a young nursing student was brutally murdered in a Chicago suburb of Oak Park. Following the advice of well-meaning friends, Steve Linscott, a student at Emmaus Bible College, told police about a dream he'd had the night of the crime. Oak Park police later arrested him, interpreting his dream account as the roundabout confession of a psychopathic killer. Later, a jury found Linscott guilty, and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. There was just one problem. Linscott was innocent. Only after time in prison and numerous legal appeals, a process that lasted 12 years, was Linscott free and vindicated. Those years undoubtedly brought the most difficult challenges Linscott will ever face, Separated from his wife and children for three and a half years, except for brief visits, wondering if he had somehow brought all this on himself and why God had allowed it to happen, surviving prison violence. Those were tough years, and yet years of growth and a growing awareness of the goodness of God. In his own words, he says this, I've come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes nor where he places us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible itself is replete with accounts of divine action or inaction that does not seem fair and does not make sense except when viewed in light of God's perfect plan. Thousands of Egyptian children were massacred while while a baby named Moses was spared. Joseph was a liar and a thief, And yet it was he, not his faithful brother Esau, who received the blessing of their father Isaac and of God. On one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind. But God has a plan, a perfect plan. So I thought that was very interesting, and uh, it goes along with what the Apostle Paul is dealing with as we catch up to him now in the book of Acts. Uh, it seems like if you'd been here for the past several messages on Acts that they just seem to be rehashing the same thing over and over again. And, and what is that? Well, Paul is falsely accused of something. Paul defends himself and then nothing happens, right? Um, we've seen this uh, at several points in time. As we catch up with the Apostle Paul, he's in Caesarea, still in Roman custody. And if you think we'd been in this section of the book of Acts for a long time, Paul was in Roman custody for about two years. So last time was two years ago. This time we're catching up with him two years later. Uh, We saw how he got there. Paul arrived in Jerusalem, hoping to eventually make the trip to Rome. And uh, because of uh, the, at the behest of the Christians in Jerusalem, Paul went to the temple in order to make, uh, uh, to offer the sacrifice, to remain in solidarity with his Jewish brethren. However, seven days after arriving in Jerusalem, we remember that he was swarmed by the zealous Jews who 
had followed him, and he was eventually taken into Roman custody. He was brought before a Jewish council, with there being no legitimate charges brought up against him, and this resulted in, well, not much of anything. Eventually, there was a plot to have the Apostle Paul killed, and he was transferred to Caesarea. And when he was there, he had a, feeling, a, a hearing before Felix. So this is the second hearing that he had. And just like the first one, there was no evidence for his crimes that could be demonstrated, and yet it resulted in nothing. He was held in custody for about two years by Felix, who had hoped to extort some money out of Paul, and who had sought to do the Jews a favor by keeping him imprisoned. And that is where we find him when we catch up in Acts chapter 25. And we'll read the first 12 verses of this chapter. So Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Festus, then, having arrived in the province, after three days went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with him, requesting a favor against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem while they, were, while they set an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go down there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them accuse him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no sin either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me on these matters? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have together. We're thankful for the life of Paul, the great example that he has been as it ultimately points to Christ and the things that he has gone through. We're thankful for this example here that you were at work even when it seems like you are absent in the life of Paul. Even when things are difficult, you are still there working out your purposes. I pray that uh, we would take the lessons here. I pray that we would be able to see you working in our lives as we consider how you worked in this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we had read last time in uh, verse 27 of the previous chapter, two years pass while Paul is under in the custody of Felix. We remember Felix wasn't necessarily a very good ruler. He wasn't very popular among the Jewish people. He uh, ruled in a, a very poor way, it seemed like. And as a result of this, uh, he was 
pretty much fired from his job. Nero, the emperor at the time, had Felix recalled and replaced him with a man named Festus. And before Felix left, one of the reasons that he left is because of the many complaints that the Jews had against him, hoping to maybe uh, soothe their anger a little bit, seeking to do them a favor. He had left Paul in prison. And that's the situation that Fe uh, Festus now inherits. Festus arrives to the province, and history tells us, we can know just about when this took place, uh, Festus took over for Felix around 59 to 60 AD. And Festus did not live a very long time. He only lived about two years after this before dying. We remember Felix was pretty corrupt. He took bribes. He allowed for widespread violence and, and things like that. Festus seems, at least according to history, seems to have been a much more competent ruler. He cracked down on many of the disturbances that were taking place, including the violence of the zealots. It didn't seem that he took bribes in the same way that Felix did. And we maybe even see some of this competence in how promptly Festus seeks to have the case of Paul dealt with after hearing of his accusers in Jerusalem. So Festus arrives at Caesarea, and within a few days, he goes down to Jerusalem. And with new leadership, the Jewish leaders are still seeking to have Paul put to death. And they want to do so by ambushing him in Jerusalem. Uh, we remember the last time Paul was in Jerusalem, they had plotted to kill him. Acts 23, verses 12 through 13, it says, when it, was the, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And the Jewish leadership was in on this plot as well and had Paul summoned so that he could be ambushed along the road. Well, uh, these folks apparently were getting quite hungry at this point in time. Uh, so uh, seeing the opportunity, they, uh, with the new leadership, they sought to have Paul brought to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they asked Festus. So uh, this plot is made. Festus is asked that Paul be brought to Jerusalem so that he could be tried. But Festus answers in this way. Uh, he says, let the influential men among you go down to Caesarea with me, and if there's anything wrong about this man, let them accuse him. So Festus wasn't going to stay in town long. He was going to go back to Caesarea. So he said, why don't you come up with me, and then you can bring your charges against him. So Festus didn't go for this. Uh, whether, uh, we don't know whether or not Festus at this point in time was aware of this plot against Paul. But what we do see is that just as God had been providentially protecting Paul wherever he went, no matter what happened, uh, he uses Festus unwittingly to continue to protect the Apostle Paul in not bringing him down into harm's way in Jerusalem. So Festus leaves it for the prosecutors to come with him to Caesarea rather than having Paul transported to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 6 goes on and says, and after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So charges are brought up against Paul once again. Uh, and it's, it's notable that Luke continues to repeat this same story, right? We 
have read it. It seems like we've read this already, right? Just change the names around and the same thing happens over and over and over again. And, and guess, we, guess what? Spoiler alert for next week. The same thing is going to happen next week with a new ruler, uh, with Agrippa. So, however, the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve this for us in Scripture. So, I think it's important for us to continue to consider it and consider why he has done so. And to continue to look at these charges that are brought up against him. So, uh, Festus returns to Caesarea with the prosecutors. He sits at the tribunal to hear these charges. And we have some idea of what the charges are. We've already read them. The first charge is that Paul is a lawbreaker. Uh, This has been a slander that has followed the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry. And uh, to the point where even Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem believed this lie, that Paul was a lawbreaker and he was going around telling Jewish people to forsake the law of Moses. That was the charge. We do know that while the Apostle Paul ministered among the Gentiles, he would not hold himself to certain ceremonial aspects of the law. For instance, if he was among Gentiles, he would have no problem if pork was served to him because uh, he recognized that uh, this law is ultimately fulfilled, that uh, he he does not uh, necessarily need to hold himself to it, while at the same time, when he was in Jewish company, he would hold to the law. Not because he had to, but ultimately out of respect to the Jewish people so that it wouldn't be a stumbling block. He describes this practice in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, where he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win, to the, win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. Though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those without law... As without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. So it's, uh, it's not as if Paul suddenly became an antinomian, uh, a fancy word that basically means that there is no law, there are no rules. Uh, free reign, once you become a Christian, you can do whatever you want. That's a, a charge that can sometimes be brought against Christians. Um, I, I remember. Uh, even thinking this way before becoming a Christian, well, hold on a second. If all of your sins for all time are forgiven, doesn't that mean you can pretty much do whatever you want, right? And uh, that is so often the charge that may be brought up against Christians, and that's a charge that's even brought up against Paul that he answers in, in several different places. In the book of Romans, Paul says, why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, right? So if God is glorified in forgiving my sins, well, why shouldn't I just sin so God is glorified even more, right? Uh, And that's an attitude that many had, and that's an attitude that the Apostle Paul was charged with. And he says that this is a slanderous charge. This is not what we're teaching. This is not uh, how we live in Christ. And he says of such a person that their condemnation is just. Similarly, the Apostle Paul says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And we may hear this and say, Oh, great, that means I can do whatever I want. And that's what many people would charge the Apostle Paul with. But then he goes on to say, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? 
May it never be. So we need, uh, we need to be careful and recognize that uh, while there is freedom from the law, while those ceremonial aspects of uh, the law are ultimately done away with, that's, the Apostle Paul was not an antinomian. However, that's the charge that's brought up against the Apostle Paul. He's running around living in, uh, telling people they can live in a moral lifestyle, telling people to forsake the law of Moses. But even Paul, in his discussion to the Corinthians, he says that, uh, I am not without the law of God, but I am under the law of Christ. Uh, so that I might win those who are without law. So that's one charge brought against him, but we see that that charge isn't true. We see uh, part of that charge is that he, distir- that he stirs up dissension among the Jews, right? And we know that everywhere the Apostle Paul went, a Jewish riot seemed to follow, right? Uh, you, you could almost uh, bank on it as we were reading those earlier sections in the book of Acts. There were things that were a constant. Paul would arrive at a new city, Paul would go to the synagogue, Paul would be rejected by the synagogue, and Paul would be chased out of town by the angry Jews who kicked him out of the synagogue. Uh, You can find that in so many places. So it is true that uh, wherever Paul went, there seemed to be a riot that followed, and this is one of the charges that were brought before him when he was on trial before Felix. The previous chapter, uh, one of the charges is that we found this man to be a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. However, if we stop and we think about it and we look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we'll recognize that if there truly was any offense against Paul, it was not his fault. Rather, it came from those who hated his message. Right? If the Apostle Paul had simply been quiet about the claims of Christ, he would have been pretty easy to get along with. Right, And it can be the same for us today. We sometimes feel as if, well, uh, in order to keep the peace, we should keep our, mouth sh- our mouths shut. Right? The problem is we don't realize that we do not live in a peaceful world. There is no peace to be kept. Uh, The only peace that comes is by proclaiming the gospel of Christ. But as soon as you start to do that, then the veil, the charade of peace, begins to go away. And we see that the world truly is not at peace. And that's what Paul experienced as well. He goes out in the world preaching the gospel of peace. And a world that is full of hatred acts, uh, acts according to that hatred towards him. You know, if Paul had been quiet, he'd have been very easy to get along with. And we see that in the world today. Quiet Christians are usually pretty easy for the world to get along with. Christians who don't seek to live according to their own standards that they proclaim, they're pretty easy for the world to get along with. However, when Christians simply begin to say what God said, right? When they simply begin to repeat what God has already said in his word, and uh, explain the the claims that Christ makes for himself. Well, we begin to see that Christians aren't necessarily so easy for the world to get along with. And this is ultimately because the world hates Christ. So when his word is spoken by his followers, and the consciences of sinners are pricked, they will not appreciate it. So it's not necessarily Paul's fault that these things happen. The world is already in an upheaval. 
the Apostle Paul comes and he tries to douse it out with the gospel, and there's a massive result, uh, there's a massive offense against him as a result. But uh, that's one of the charges that's brought up against the Apostle Paul. He's a troublemaker. He stirs up dissension. Another one of the charges brought against him, and this also was along with the initial charges, is that Paul desecrated the temple. And we talked about the temple uh, several times, I'm sure, but it's worth repeating. The temple was the sacred place for the Jewish people, and Paul recognized this. And uh, this sacredness of the temple was even enforced by the Roman rulers around them. uh, And one of the things that kept the temple holy in their minds is that only Jews were allowed inside. The Gentile was not allowed inside, and we see that in the law of God and things like that. But this was enforced by even the Romans. There was a sign in the temple that said, if anyone brings, or if a Gentile walks into this temple, he does so to his own destruction. Basically saying that it is a death penalty offense for a Gentile to be in the temple. Well, we remember that when Paul was in the temple, what was the charge that was brought against him? He is desecrating this holy place by bringing a Gentile into the temple because Paul had been seen in town with a Gentile. And uh, this was one easy charge they could throw at him because the goal isn't the truth. The goal is ultimately his death. And if this is a death penalty offense, well, then they bring it out against him. So charged with desecrating the temple. And then here's another charge that's interesting. Uh, He is charged with... Uh, committing an offense against Caesar. And we see this in, in Paul's response. I've done nothing against Caesar. Well, this uh, is a charge that we've seen throughout the book of Acts as well. In Acts chapter 17, in uh, I think I believe it was Thessalonica, when they uh, are searching for the apostle Paul and uh, there's another riot that is going on. In Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, we read some of the charges that are brought before them. These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So uh, in this prosecution, they were hoping to use this to their advantage. If there is another king, Jesus, who is above Caesar, well, that's a very treasonous thought. We see that even in Jesus' trial, there were trumped-up charges of treason that were laid against him. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, we read the accusation against Jesus. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And similar charges may have been brought up against the Apostle Paul. And the purpose of this specific charge was obvious, right? The Romans probably wouldn't execute the Apostle Paul over a Jewish matter, right? They didn't necessarily care about uh, religious customs of the Jews or, or anything like that. However, if this was a, if Paul could be charged with treason, then the state would have a reason to put him to death. However, this charge that Paul had committed a crime against Caesar may have been their undoing, because if it is a crime against Caesar, then it's something that can be dealt with in Caesar's court, which Paul will ultimately use to his advantage here. Throughout this, the Apostle Paul maintains his innocence. He says in his own defense, I've committed no sin either against the law of the Jews 
or against the temple or against Caesar. I've done nothing wrong. We continue reading in verses uh, 9 through 12. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. So he refuses to go to Jerusalem. Remember, Festus, he's a politician. He wants to be diplomatic, and he wants to keep the Jewish people under his charge happy. So he asks if Paul would go to Jerusalem. And perhaps uh, Festus was even seeking to give some authority to the Sanhedrin uh, while still presiding over the trial, right? Uh, Some kind of joint effort, perhaps. Uh, we know that the Roman rulers at that time, did uh, uh, they did allow the Jews to carry out some degree of justice in their own jurisdiction. However, they were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. You remember when Jesus was brought before Pilate, Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. But because the Jews, they wanted to carry out capital punishment, they were unable to do so. So maybe Festus, what he's doing here is saying, well, we can placate the Jews. We can allow them to try him and carry out whatever punishment they see fit. But uh, this proposal uh, ultimately would have led to his death because a fair trial wasn't the intention of his accusers. His death was was their intention. And this proposal would have made them very happy because if Paul went back to Jerusalem, there was a mob there waiting to ambush him and kill him. And Paul sees this, and he refuses to go back. He refuses to go back to Jerusalem, and he does so for a number of reasons. So Paul does not go back for this idea, well, one, because he knows that there is no case against him, right? Uh, He says, I'm standing before Caesar's judgment where I ought to be tried, I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. Now, what a difficult position that would be. Imagine you are in trial. Imagine there is no case against you. Imagine the judge himself who is deciding the case knows that there is no case against you. And yet the judge says, you know what, let's let's set another trial date. Let's reconvene again, except... Instead of doing it here in the safety of my chambers, let's go to the neighborhood of where the people who want you dead are accusing you. So uh, it must have been a very frustrating position for the Apostle Paul. Uh, He doesn't go for this idea because he knows what awaits for him in Jerusalem. Um, uh, He maintains that he did no wrong. Uh, and this is known by Festus. There's been no evidence of any wrongdoing, just libelous accusation. Paul has also committed no crime against Rome. He goes on to say, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. So it's not that Paul's trying to stand in the way of justice, right? It's not that he's trying to uh, uh, twist the favor of the court or anything like that. He says, if I'm worthy of death, I would accept it. However, we all know that that is not the case. He says, I'm uh, I'm standing before Caesar's judgment seat, and I ought to be tried according to Caesar's standards, right? I ought to be tried here. So Paul, at this point, is stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? We've heard that expression. On the one hand, he could have further trials 
in the Roman court, right? All right, Festus, I'll let you set another date. Well, how's that worked out for him so far? Well, he's in Roman custody. He's been in Roman custody for two years at this point. No real charges brought up against him, and yet they're unwilling to let him go out of fear of the Jewish people. On the other hand, he could agree to go to Jerusalem. Well, we all know there wouldn't have been a fair trial in Jerusalem. The only thing that awaits him in Jerusalem is an ambush waiting to kill him. So he really can't go anywhere at this point, it seems like. Uh, This is a a really bad uh, place to be. We know that the Bible teaches that slow justice is ultimately no justice. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 says, Because a sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully given to do evil. And I think we could apply that principle to uh, any form of justice. When justice isn't carried out properly, it only leads to further injustice. With nothing else that Paul can do, he then says this, I appeal to Caesar. Paul appeals to the court of Caesar. This is a right that the Apostle Paul would have as a Roman citizen to appeal to the highest court in the land. He probably didn't trust Festus to judge in a fair way with all the political pressure against him. So instead of being judged by Festus, where there's all this political pressure and all this other difficulties, he asked to be brought before Emperor Nero. And we do know that Nero was the emperor at this time. Nero would become famous for being the first emperor to carry out a great persecution against the Christian church. And one of the worst persecutions there was. And he did so, again, under false pretenses. At that point in time, uh, a large portion of the city of Rome had burnt down. And this was likely done under the order of Nero. However, you don't want things getting out that you burnt your own city down, right? So what Nero ends up doing is he blames the Christians. And this allows for a great widespread persecution of the Christians. And horrible things were done to them. They're tied up in animal skins and allowed to be eaten by dogs. They're uh, put up on posts and used to light light up his garden during parties. So horrible, horrible things that Nero has done. But at this point in time, those things hadn't happened yet. uh, At this point in time, Nero had not yet gone quite so crazy. The first part of Nero's rule, believe it or not, he was actually considered to be a model emperor, uh, considered to be a right and a just emperor. So at this point in time, Paul would have had no issue appealing to the court of the emperor. So finally, after convening with his own council, Festus answers, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So Paul now is on the way to Rome. So things are finally starting to move, right? And that's kind of what uh, we see in this chapter. Remember, we have to take a big picture of what's happening here. Remember at the very beginning of the book of Acts, what does Jesus say? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth, right? That's the overall picture. That's the big story. Why was, why was the Apostle Paul called out originally? Well, you are going to be my witness, my apostle to the Gentiles. And now, where is 
the witness of Jesus to the Gentiles going to go? Well, he's going to go to the heart of the Gentile world, the city of Rome. Have you heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Well, Rome really was the hub of the world at that point. Uh, You make it to Rome, you've made it to the world. And that is where Paul is going. Uh, Paul appeals to Caesar. He does this, and there's a number of reasons for it, right? There's the obvious reason of there wasn't anything that's going to happen to him here. But we all know that Paul also has an ulterior motive in appealing to Caesar. He's going to be brought to the city of Rome so that he can proclaim the gospel. And this has been his desire for years at this point, to make it to the city of Rome to proclaim the gospel. And the city of Rome isn't the end of the journey to the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, Rome really is just a stopping point to Spain, right? Once you've made it to Spain, you can't really go all that much further west. Paul has the ends of the earth in his sights, and Rome is a stop along the way. Paul says this in his letter to the Romans, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among the Gentiles, even among, uh, some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul finally is going to Rome, right? Have you ever been on a long journey, hundreds and hundreds of miles, and it seems like hour after hour after hour goes by, and it may even feel like you're not even close, you're not even any closer uh, to where you, to your destination than when you started. However, as you're on the road, you begin to start seeing signs to where you're going, you know, 200 miles to, I don't know, Las Vegas, forever. <laughs> Who cares? Wherever you want to go, right? 200 miles, 150 miles, 100 miles. You're getting there. You're getting closer. Well, here, Rome is still off in the distance, right? But Paul is now seeing, there's the first sign. We're on the way. We're getting there. Remember the words that the Lord Jesus had told him. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed my cause in Jerusalem, you must witness to Rome also. So, in conclusion, let's, let's look and see some of the lessons that we can draw from this. Though Paul was wrongly imprisoned for two years, right, this two years of sitting still, uh, of not getting anywhere, was not outside of the plan of God, right? Last time we talked about how all things work together for good to those who love God. Well, even this is one of those all things. It may not necessarily be good in and of itself. We can look at it and see the wrong in it. We can see the injustice of it. Uh, We can mourn at the hatred of his own kinsmen towards him. We can mourn at the injustice of the rulers who are supposed to be taking care of him. And yet, this is all within God's control, right? The Apostle Paul, and this is something else I thought of, his circumstances at this point really aren't unlike those of the circumstances of Joseph, In his life, there's a lot of similarities that we see uh, and uh, similarities with Jesus as well. But these are some of the the things that come to mind, right? Both Paul and Joseph were mistreated by his kinsmen, weren't they? They were delivered over into the hands of the enemies. 
taken far from home, wrongly imprisoned on false charges. However, we can also know that in the case of Joseph, in the case of Paul, that God was with him, that God still had a plan for his life, that there was still a goal that he was heading to, that there were still purposes that God was going to accomplish, and that these purposes that God had would ultimately lead to good, right? In Joseph's case, it was the saving of the physical lives of not just those in Egypt, but his own family, who would, uh, uh, who, for, uh, of whose lineage would come the Messiah. And in Paul's case, it was eternal life for all who would hear the gospel from him as he made his way to Rome and beyond. And sometimes in the world, things don't move as fast as we would like, do they? We don't get to where we're going quite as fast as we would like to. Justice isn't carried out as fast as we would like. Injustice, particularly against God's people, happens more often than we would like. However, just as in the case with Paul, this doesn't mean that God isn't accomplishing his purposes, even through these imperfect means. So we can know that the same God who was with Joseph, who was with Paul, the same God who seemed to have been silent for years and years as Paul was waiting, and waiting. We can know that God is carrying out his purposes in his own time, and that his purposes in our lives will ultimately be carried out. God is moving. God is at work, and we will see the signposts on the way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had together to read and consider your word, to consider the reality that you are indeed with us, we don't always notice it. The highway of life may see, seem long and dreary and, and boring, and yet uh, this highway is one that is ultimately designed by you. You have planned out our days before we've even lived one. You are the Lord of our lives, and you've made your promise that you have a purpose for us, that the things that happen in this life are ultimately for our good, and that you are using us to accomplish your purposes in this world. I pray that we would be able to see that. I pray that we'd be able to be encouraged when we begin to see some of those road signs uh, indicating that we're finally getting to where we're going. We praise you and we thank you for this time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>